Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. What can we do to receive salvation? We all know that is not something attained through meditation, discipline, or religion. Jesus already fulfilled our salvation when he died on the cross for us. There is nothing we can do to receive salvation. We receive salvation through the grace of God at no cost to us. But there is so much that we can do after salvation. We must invite those that do not know about Jesus into salvation. Today we will be talking about the life of James Hudson Taylor. He recognized his calling and devoted his life in spreading the word of Jesus to the people in China who had never heard of the good news. James Hudson Taylor was born in 1832 in Barnsley, Yorkshire, England. He was raised under a father who preached and was a pharmacist and a mother who had great faith. Following after his parents, at five years old, Taylor liked to gather his younger siblings together and preach to them. He also stated that when he grew up, he was going to become a missionary and travel around the world to spread the word of Jesus. When he was old enough to attend school, Taylor began to question his faith and his religion by making worldly friends, and his faith became shaky. His rebellion against his faith became one of his mother's daily prayer requests. When Hudson turned 17, he came across a book on his father's desk. That allowed him to welcome Jesus as his Savior. Up until that point, Taylor attended church because of his parents, but after reading the book, he looked forward to attending church, and his faith was renewed when reading what Jesus said on the cross before he died It is finished. Why did Jesus use these words? Why did Jesus not say that he was the offering to forgive our sins? What was all finished? Did Jesus' death really forgive all the past, present, and future sins? Taylor had so many questions in his head. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
Taylor's thought was, "Is Jesus really finished? If everything and all was accomplished and all the sin was forgiven through Jesus, then what was there left for him to do?" He thought that there was nothing left for him to do in this world. He then came to the realization that the only thing he can do is to accept Jesus Christ as a savior and praise Him forever. When Hudson Taylor was not able to see that God exists because of the worldly things surrounding him, the Holy Spirit began to change his mind and even made his faith and willingness to study the Word stronger. Taylor was then able to hear his calling to spread the words of Jesus to the people in China. He began to train to become a missionary in China. He exercised to keep up his health, controlled his eating and sleeping, and learned Chinese to train for the mission. He did not want to go through this kind of training, but he did it all because God never gave up on him and saved him through His grace. Taylor did all this because he was so thankful for God's grace. Taylor, in 1854, at the age of 22, decided not to receive financial donations from others and decided to travel to Shanghai, China. It took him five months, and trusting that God will lead him all the way. It was not easy for him to settle down at first in Shanghai. Taylor decided to go on this mission through the Holy Spirit and God's perfect plan, but was not able to talk to the people in a whole new country. He didn't even have the bare necessities, making it a very difficult start for him. He had no choice but to wear rags and live like the homeless people. He became ill with different diseases during the heat of summer, including a severe eye infection. But through his difficult times in the beginning, he did not get frustrated. But fell more in love with the people of China and grew to realize that there is nothing more important for these people than to teach them about salvation. When he finished one mission trip, he did not take the time to rest, but began to plan for another right away. This led to Taylor going on ten different mission trips in the course of fifteen months. Even though most of the people in China were not able to read at the time, Taylor was able to hand out 1,800 New Testaments and 2,000 copies of evangelical books to people who were able to read. One can tell how hard he worked to spread the word to everyone. In 1858, after four years in China, Taylor went on a mission trip in the upper part of China, the countryside of the Guangdong Province, with Pastor William Burns. Slave trading was legal in that part of China at the time, so one could say that they risked their lives while spreading Jesus's words to the people. Their words began to change the people, and they came to accept Jesus as their savior. With all the strain and restless days, Taylor was diagnosed with tuberculosis and forced to return to England. He wrote about his mission trips in China as he was being treated in England. Through his writings. Many people began to take interest in wanting to help future mission trips in China, and they formed the China Inland Mission (CIM) to donate to the mission. Taylor, with sixteen other missionaries, traveled to China at the age of thirty-four for his second mission trip. In his travels, he was met with many realizations throughout this trip. Again, in about a year of spreading the message, about fifteen hundred people attended church in Hangzhou. And many more people in different parts of China began to accept Jesus as their savior. I give you my life. I give.
Coming up next, we introduce you to our new speaker, Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Decimation of Death, Part 1, based on Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 through 66. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. The book of Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. Verse 26. Then he, in Pilate, released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. In verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is... Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. We have just read Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Romans crucified many individuals, 
But any individual that they crucified was considered to be one of the most heinous, despised criminals. They didn't just crucify anyone. You had to be especially wretched to be crucified. In fact, F.F. Bruce said of the crucifixion, the word crux, which is their word for cross, was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned to death by crucifixion, they would only say, hang him on that unlucky tree. For Jews, the cross represented something even worse than unlucky. In fact, we know for the Jews, they understood someone that was hung on the cross to be someone who was cursed. So if we look in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, we are told that if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death, and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So if you are hung on a tree, according to the Jewish mind, what that means is is that you are cursed by God. Now, what, what does it mean to be cursed? That sounds... Sort of like witchcraft, maybe something old people believed in, like way back in the day. Way, way back in the day. We don't really talk about curses much. But what, what the Hebrew mind would have understood the curse to be would have been the opposite of blessing. So when God enters into a relationship with someone, He would make covenant with them. And what that covenant meant was, was that if you were obedient to God, if you kept that covenant, then you were going to be blessed. You're going to be happy with the Lord. You're going to have peace with God. But if you were disobedient to God, if, if that covenant was broken, then you would find yourself under the just curse of God. Your sins would find condemnation. Well, the crucifixion wasn't just that. It wasn't just a curse. It wasn't just unlucky. It was that. But it was also humiliating. The execution would begin just as it did with Jesus in verse 26, where they had... The flagellum, it was this whip that was made of leather. And they actually would take the ends of it and they would weld into it these pieces of bone or some kind of metal. And as they would whip somebody, that, that bone would, would come in and it would catch the flesh of the individual that was being whipped. And it would actually rip it out such that usually you could actually see the bone of the person who was being whipped and sometimes even the entrails. This was a, a heinous, a gross punishment. And it wasn't very uncommon for, for even this, just this, to lead to death. But we also know that this was used to weaken the person who was being prepared to be crucified. This would have helped encourage the death of the person who was hanging on the cross. So Jesus, he was nailed by his hands and his feet through the bone. They wanted to make sure that he was able to actually hang from the cross, that he didn't fall down off the cross, because it was the hanging that was going to kill him. D.A. Carson writes that as, as Jesus was sitting on that cross and as He was nailed to that cross, that crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. Whether tied or nailed, because sometimes they would tie, but Jesus was nailed to the cross. The victim endured countless paroxysms. And, and that's just a, a word that means that there was some kind of sudden uh, attack some kind of violent response in which they would try to sort of lift themselves up. 
And as Jesus pulled himself up with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing, and then collapsed into exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded him to do it again. So the, the scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain, all produced this, this agony that could go on sometimes for days. Can you imagine? For days, some would sit on the cross and it would at last end by suffocation, maybe cardiac arrest, a loss of blood. When there was reason to hasten death, the executioners that were standing around would come in and literally crush the legs of the person so that they couldn't push up anymore for air, leading to their eventual suffocation. Death followed almost immediately, either from shock or from collapse, that cut off breathing. You know, if we divorce the event of the crucifixion of Jesus from the meaning, and we just think about the crucifixion in and of itself, it is horrific. It is, it is scary to watch. It's scary to think about. These events seem reprehensible. And in fact, when, when we hear many people today talk about the crucifixion, they reject it, I think, in, in part with, with just cause, because they are startled by the kinds of images that are associated with the crucifixion, and they can't believe that God would send His Son to endure something like this. I mean, just think about our culture. I don't know if you remember Michael Fay in 1994 was in Singapore, where he was caught vandalizing some vehicles. And the sentence that he received was six lashings of a cane. Now, our, our country erupted. It, it was so bad that even President Bill Clinton at the time wrote to Singapore and said, please don't do this. This is too much. Now, he was not upset that Singapore did this all the time with their own people, but now he was going to do it to an American, and it became a problem. Right? Well, why is that? It's because we, in, in our country, we, we more and more sense that, that discipline is, is wrong. Now, I'm not saying that it's right that we should cane people. That's not what I'm arguing for here today. But, but there's something in us that rails against discipline. In fact, I have friends uh, that I know who have friends, not my friends, but friends who have friends, who've actually had to, to go to court over spanking their child. We're not talking about abusive spanking. They, they, they've spanked their child. They, they got in trouble and had to actually go to court for it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in school, it was not an, an awkward thing to get spanked. At least for me. I don't know about you. I mean, maybe, maybe you weren't like me. I got, I got spanked uh, more than once. I'm not going to put a number out there for you guys. But I will say that between first and seventh grade, stuff happened. I still remember Miss Fountain. Miss Fountain was amazing to me because Miss Fountain, she was literally um, sweet and gentle and frail and small. But I, I feared her because she had this thing that looked like a, a cricket paddle in her, in her room. And she literally could take two hands to this cricket paddle. The cricket paddle was bigger than her. But she got some kind of, le- I don't know how she got the leverage, but she was able to get that thing up and, and give a pretty good lick. You know, I'll be honest with you. Like, I got one spanking from Miss Fountain, and I, I was better for it. I was a better man for it. I didn't disobey anymore. I wasn't making comments that I shouldn't make. You know, that, that fixed the problem. But here we are, just, just 
a little over a decade and a half from when I was in school, and we have people that are literally going to court over these things. So you can imagine that if we have a problem with spanking, the crucifixion is going to disgust us. Friends, it is disgusting. The, the whole idea of the crucifixion, the pain that, that happens in that is, is scary, it's fearsome, it's meant to be. It's not something God created, it's something that we created. And the cross of Christ challenges our modern minds. In fact, I think that it's pretty common for people of our generation to look at Christ's death as ridiculous. In fact, it's, it's in some way seen as the ridiculous, angry expectation of a primitive God at best. And it's divine child abuse at worst. But the message of the cross isn't that God enjoys our suffering. Remember, the cross is what we created. But instead, what we know is, is that if we understand our Bibles, and we understand the God that has communicated Himself to us, who has spoken to us, if we really know that God then what we know is, is it's not that God loves our suffering, but that God is, is so good that He is willing to literally enter into our suffering with us. No other God does that. But our God says, I'm coming in to enter in with you, and I'm going to lead you out of the slavery that has bound you. I think it's interesting that I just had to go through a whole explanation of crucifixion for us, mainly because when you read the account of the crucifixion in Matthew... If you have not seen it before, the details are pretty scant. You might not know exactly what it is that he's talking about because Matthew spends more time on the events surrounding the crucifixion than what the actual crucifixion looks like. And why is that? I think it's because Matthew sees this dark, literally, horrific, historical event in light of its meaning. Matthew is captivated by what it means. And if we don't understand its meaning, then we're not going to understand the purpose. So the main point this morning is that Jesus was abandoned so that we can draw near. Jesus was abandoned so that we can draw near. That's the main point that this text makes. Another way to say it is, is that Jesus paid our debt so that we can be forgiven. Jesus paid our debt so that we can be forgiven. And we're going to see this in two ways. First, Jesus was forsaken. And second, the veil was torn. Jesus was forsaken and the veil was torn. So we're going to begin with Jesus was forsaken. In verses 27 through 30, the soldiers had stripped Jesus down and they put a scarlet robe on him. After that, they, they thrust a crown of thorns upon his head. And they handed a staff to him as sort of a mock scepter. What they're doing is they're, they're acting as though he's king, but at the same time they're, they're mocking him, they're making fun of him, and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then proceed to spit on him, and to take his scepter, and to beat him with it. About verse 33, they came to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is the word from which we, we get uh, our Latin derivative, Calvary. So while on the cross, these taunts continue. So in verse 37, they placed a sign to mock the Jews and their king, saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, who they crucified. And then in verse 40, passers-by, as they're coming by this cross, as they're walking past it, we, they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, 
Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're really the Son of God. Even the two robbers. I mean, this is when you know things are bad. The one on the right and the one on the left who are being hung with Jesus. They start with their their last breaths. They're sitting there saying, you know, you're not really the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, you would save yourself and us. So even they are mocking Him. When it seemed the whole world had turned on Christ in verse 45, it says that from the sixth hour, which would have been about 12 p.m., until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., the light part of the day, darkness came over all the land. From noon to three, it was completely dark. And this darkness, what, what it's communicating is, is that God's judgment is coming down. And in verse 46, it says that at about the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if when you read this, you're anything like me, that's a little bit startling. Just think about it. The, the word forsaken, it, it means to abandon, to leave alone. And if you know Jesus and the fact that He is indeed the Son of God who is the God-man and He's also God, then how in the world can God the Father abandon God the Son? What in the world does that mean? I mean those are the kinds of things that at least I think about at night's. Well, here's, here's a, a few things that have been said. Some say that Jesus being forsaken was a cry of anger, unbelief or despair. In other words, Jesus comes into this last hour and He's hanging on the cross and He's utterly shocked that He is still sitting on that cross and that God hasn't shown up yet. He was surprised. Well, if you know me, you know that that's not an option. I don't think that Jesus was surprised. I mean, this is the God-man. And, and all throughout, he's telling of the fact that he, he went to die on the cross, that he would die. He had been telling his friends that this is the way that it had to happen. So I don't think that that's it. Others might say that he feels forsaken only in, in his emotional feeling sense, but that he's not really forsaken. Well, I, I guess that that's possible as, as well, that he just feels one way, but that's not the reality that surrounds it. But I have to trust that that Jesus has integrity when he says that he is forsaken. That he has been forsaken by God. That it's not just something that he feels, but that he's crying out in anguish because of what is real. We know in, in some cases people have said that perhaps he's just quoting from Psalm 22, the beginning of it, to thrust our attention towards the end of it. So 22.1 literally says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in hope and the fact that God redeems His people and fights for them. So maybe He was expecting His listeners to have a really good understanding of Psalm 22 and had it memorized and would have known what He was talking about. Well, I have to think that if Jesus wanted for His his listeners to be thinking about the second half of Psalm 22, He had that on tap and He would have pulled that out. But He didn't. Now, I think that Jesus, when He is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that he is honestly crying out in sincere anguish over the extent of his sacrifice. In the darkness, the world grows dark 
And he is now absolutely alone. Everybody else has left him. But now it is the Father that has left him. He has been forsaken by everyone, but now most importantly, he's been forsaken by God. I'll be honest, I I don't know what this means ontologically. I I don't know what this means in the sense of God being three persons with one essence, always knit together. This this abandonment. My mind, I, I just can't even grasp that. I think that might be, I'm hoping that might be just beyond our comprehension. And maybe the only person who can literally comprehend and understand the fullness of that is Jesus Himself who experienced it. Who experienced that unique union with the Father in which He experienced that unique separation. But what I do know is, is what it means for us. See, for us, and that's what what this is being communicated to us for, is for us, this means that Jesus took all of our judgment on Himself in the darkness of that three o'clock hour. Every bit of it. There wasn't even the least part of the judgment of God that Jesus Christ didn't take and drink in. His holy name 
worship your Listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you. So, if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, Please feel free to email us at askhsgm@gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Following is a program titled "The Lord Is My Shepherd." Where we learn about our Lord, who is our Shepherd, 
through Psalm chapter 23. Hello, listeners. This is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. Last time, we looked at the portion of Scripture that reads, I shall not want, from Psalm 23, verse 1. We saw together that this confession of, I shall not want, comes from trusting that God, our shepherd, who knows us much better than we know ourselves and knows all our needs, will fill us, and not from the worldly point of view, eating well, living well, and generally being prosperous. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who did not spare his own life for us, and the Lord God, who did not spare his only son's life for us, what would he hold back? Whatever God does not allow us to have is because he loves us, because he knows us too well. It's because he already knows the results of what would happen if he were to allow us to have all that we desire. The sheep that are raised by the true shepherd would never have any unmet needs. This is because he prepares and guides with the things that we need most. It is said that sheep are very sensitive animals, and so they usually don't lie down. In fact, most herbivores do not lie down. Because they're exposed to the carnivores as prey, herbivores do not lie down. They're ready to run away at any time. According to shepherds, it's nearly impossible by nature for sheep to lie down unless four conditions are met. What do you think those four conditions are? The first condition is what I just told you about, the fear of being prey for the carnivores. The sheep will not lie down unless they're completely free from fear, the fear of being eaten. The second condition is that because they're animals that live in groups, not just by themselves, they don't lie down if there is trouble among them. And third, if they're bothered by flies and parasites, they don't lie down if they feel uncomfortable due to these insect pests. And lastly, if they are not full from having eaten green feed, then they will not lie down. Ultimately, this means that for the sheep to be able to lie down and rest, they must feel sure that they're free from fear, anxiety, suffering, and hunger. But the surprising thing is that the only being that can satisfy the sheep with all these four things is the shepherd. The sheep cannot meet these four conditions on their own, and some other animal cannot provide for them either. Not even a hired shepherd can satisfy them with these four things. Only the good shepherd who truly loves the sheep can satisfy them with these things and give them true rest. The sheep is so timid and so fearful that even if a pet comes in, they run away, scattering everywhere. In reality, if a wild dog or a wolf-like animal comes in, a sheep that is pregnant can get so stressed out it results in miscarriage. When this kind of carnivorous animal comes in at night, after everyone has fallen asleep, the shepherd may find many dead sheep the following day. And this is, of course, a great loss to the shepherd. That is why the shepherd is careful 
to know the things that threaten the sheep and does his best to prevent these things from happening. If he hears even a small noise, he must go out with a weapon to check on them, to protect them. The shepherd does his best so that the sheep can be free from this kind of fear. The funny thing is that although the sheep are afraid of outside attacks like this, they maintain a hostile, intense relationship among themselves. With sheep, as with people, there is a ruling order among them. According to shepherds, the sheep that is haughty and cunning becomes the leader of the rest. This kind of leader butts the younger sheep that attempt to take over appetizing pasture space. The weaker sheep easily gives in before this type of attack from the leader. But sometimes, young sheep with more strength fight back and they hurt each other. An interesting thing is that even when they're in the midst of such a fight, they stop when the shepherd comes nearby. It is said that the behavior of the sheep is very different depending on whether the shepherd is with them or not. So, the shepherd always walks between the sheep that cause fighting and strife, easing the tension among them. From time to time, the shepherd also must rebuke the leader's sheep or the one causing trouble. But even if they're free from the attacks of the savage beasts that are after their lives and they're free from the tight tension with other sheep, they encounter yet another problem. That's the attack of insect pests that are always after them. It is pretty well known that these kind of pests like to be inside the nose of the sheep where there's always moisture and they want to make it their home and lay eggs in them. Because of that, the sheep's nose is always itchy. So very often they butt their heads against a wall. Sometimes they even die from butting their heads so hard. So the shepherd is always careful to ensure the pests don't harm the sheep he is caring for. And it's said that this is not a very easy thing to do. The shepherd constantly works to wash the sheep with pesticide, feed them with an insect antifeedant, and also he prepares a brush that he can use to comb the insect pests off the sheep. This requires a lot of money, time, and effort from the shepherd. Once they're free from the attack of outsiders, free from the tension within the herd, free from the attacks of the pest, the sheeps can lie down when their stomachs are full. In Psalm 23, David confesses that God makes him lie down in green pastures. But it's not easy to find green pastures in the region of Israel. Bethlehem, the place where he used to live, is dry due to the strong heat of the sun, and so most of the pastures are faded brown in color. So to be able to lie sheep down in green pastures in this kind of region, the shepherd must grow himself this kind of green pasture. He must prepare the green feed by tilling the gravelly field, getting rid of the thorn bushes and weeds, leveling and turning the soil and sowing the seed. Finding a green pasture in the midst of desolate wilderness means that enormous effort was poured out by the shepherd. If the four conditions we have shared so far are not met, the sheep will not lie down.
when David confesses that God makes him lie down in green pastures, he's saying that God keeps him from all outside attacks, makes him free from fear, that he's always with him so that he doesn't need to worry about other people. And he takes care of even the small problems that bother and harass him. And that he prepares and makes an environment in which he can live. And so today, our shepherd Lord doesn't spare any effort and doesn't even sleep to make us lie down in green pastures, to keep us safe, to fill our every need, and to help us grow well. Won't you give praise and thanksgiving to our God? I will meet you here again next week at this time with more of The Lord is My Shepherd. Thank you.
Hudson Taylor did not always feel happiness during his mission to China. During the time of his missions, he lost his first daughter and youngest son, went through the Tianjin massacre, losing many of his fellow missionaries, and was sent back to England due to his deterioration in health. But his passion for missions work did not disappear. It was with Taylor's prayer written in the margin of his Bible that read, Please send about 100 missionaries to China. Please let me be able to deal with your work all the way to the end. That ended up in the headlines in the newspaper, making Christians become interested in the missions work in China, and more people wanted to be part of the missions. In addition, North America, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, Australia, and New Zealand joined the missions to China. They say that at one point, there were 1,000 missionaries in China. Isn't that amazing? Hudson Taylor goes to China again at the age of 45 after regaining his health, and he finishes his life as a missionary in Hunan at the age of 73. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. This is because Jesus did all of this for us by dying on the cross. We earn salvation by believing that Jesus died on the cross for us, but there is so much for us to do after we receive salvation. There is a reason that God doesn't take us away after we receive salvation, but leaves us on this world. The reason is to teach the words of Jesus to everyone in this world that does not know Him yet. If you think of anyone that needs to hear the words of Jesus today, please spread the good news to them. This is what we need to do after salvation. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week. And God bless. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son to Just treasure How great the pain of searing was The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory
Yeah.